The ETF Edge podcast is sponsored by Invesco QQQ, supporting the innovators changing the world. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Welcome to ETF Edge, the podcast. If you're looking to learn the latest insights on all things exchange-traded funds, you're in the right spot every week. We're bringing you interviews, market analysis, and breaking down what it all means for investors. I'm your host, Bob Pisani. Today on the show, with ETF flows all over the map as we kick off a new month, We'll do a deep dive on where retail investor sentiment is and get the lowdown on where the flows are going, including the titanic trading volume we've seen in leveraged and inverse ETFs to track the triple Qs. That's the NASDAQ 100. Plus, how are corporate earnings holding up for the rest of the year? Here's my conversation with Anthony Denier. He's the CEO of Webull, along with Nicholas Colas, co-founder of DataTrack. Anthony, uh, most traded ETF on your platform, I have been noting this for, for weeks now, not on your, on your platform, but everywhere, Ultra short QQQ, symbol SQQQ. This yep. is three times the inverse of the S&P 500 on a daily basis. And normally you see the S&P 500 funds yep. most actively traded. Why have retail investors suddenly embraced leverage in inverse ETFs, particularly the NASDAQ 100 ones? Right. Well, NASDAQ 100, as you know, is very tech heavy. Tech heavy seems to be what our customers are are into trading, right? It's the ones that move intraday, right? It's less boring, to put it that way. Um, and I think there's a couple different reasons. One I don't think is talked about enough is the retail investor, the average account, went from 5,000 to now averaging about 3,000 on a platform like Webull. That would also apply to a Robinhood-type investor. Um, they sometimes won't even qualify for leverage in terms of utilizing margin because of their account balance. Mm -hmm. So they're utilizing these leverage ETFs to make up for their account being downgraded maybe from a margin or to a non-leverage margin account or possibly even only owning a cash account uh, to trade their stocks. Yeah. So, Nick, uh, every day the most actively traded ETFs in terms of shares traded are what we talked about, that SQQ and the TQQ, which yeah. is the other side of, of the whole thing, three times leveraged on the triple Q. Uh, SPY is still the largest in terms of dollar value, but I see $5 billion in notional trading of SQQQ every day. I would have thought professional traders would be using these, uh, but Anthony says retail traders are starting to use them now. Is this a sign that retail is pessimistic? What do what, what we take away? Is there a risk uh, about all of this use of leverage and inverse ETFs around you know, I think from a market standpoint, it tells us that a lot of retail traders are trying to claw back maybe some losses from earlier in the year. They're down. They want to get back up. And so they view the riskier bets as the most efficient way to start to try to claw back some of those losses and get back flat on the year and make some money. So I think what we're seeing is a really interesting adjustment in risk tolerance. You'd think that when markets go down, risk tolerance goes down. For a lot of accounts, for a lot of clients, it goes up. And that's what we're seeing here. So the risk tolerance is going down, you think? Risk tolerance, as far as how a long-only investor would think, maybe is going down. Hey, I want to be out. That's what we see in the fund flows. But for a trader, somebody who wants to make money in the market, you got to take your risk tolerance up in order to make that money back. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, the fund flows have really been confusing me recently. I follow them, and I, I, they tend to make, I think they tend to mean something at extremes. What I, the problem I have here is, uh, let's look at the flows here. April, we saw peak outflows. Mm -hmm. It changed in May, but it's still not consistent. So I see inflows into the S&P 500 and outflows in energy here. That's kind of interesting because energy was the big outperformer in May. I'm not yeah. sure what to yeah. make of this. And then on bonds, I want you to comment on this separately. We see modest 
inflows after huge outflows earlier in the year. So tell me what, you're expert at making sense of fund flows here. What, I want to just address equities first. Sure. What, what is this trying to tell us? It tells us primarily that investors are pulling back. And the energy point you made is really critical. Energy XLE was up 17% last month made a lot of money in that name. People were pulling back because they're pulling back on risk exposure generally. On our tracking of these fund flows, the money seems to be going directly into consumption. It's not going to bank accounts. It's not going to money market funds. It's being used primarily for consumption in an inflationary economy. So that's where the money is going. And as long as inflation is high, that's going to be, I think, the trend that we see. But you... Uh, uh, the trend follower in me says, gee, energy is the biggest performer of the year, and yet we saw some modest... Outflows, you'd think there'd still be money going into it. I'm trying to sort of make sense yeah. about it from the traditional way I well, understand trend following, for you, crying out loud. You coined a marvelous phrase in the last decade, the most hated bull market in history, right? Why was it? Because flows were negative and stock prices kept going up. This energy rally is turning into the most hated sector rally of this year. Yeah. The, uh, Anthony, it, it looks like the active trader is still pretty active. Uh, and I see that in your numbers. But you've told me separately that the fair weather trader is gone. I love that mm -hmm. phrase, the fair weather trader uh, is gone. Um, explain to us what, what that means when you say the fair weather trader is gone, the active trader is still there. Sure. I mean, the, the equity markets for the past 10 years has been operating with a lot of tailwinds helping it along, especially for newer and less experienced traders, right? It was basically buy, stock goes up, buy more. Um, you know, obviously that has changed over the last several months. You know, we're now entering bear market territory, and there's a lot of traders that have never seen a down market, and they've been burned, and they just walk away. And these, these are, you know, not necessarily traders that, that aren't, uh, aren't long-term investors, but these are traders that thought they could make money actively trading. Yeah. Right? So those are the fair-weather traders I talk about. Not, I don't want to differentiate, right? They're still investors, yeah. but not the traders. Active traders are still remain very, very active. I mean, short sales alone, we're seeing up 400% this quarter on our platform, right? Which, you know, compared to last year, uh, you know, that's, that's an active trader utilizing this volatility. But I'm looking at the numbers here. Average assets under management, 5000 a few months ago and now $3,000. Mm -hmm. So it, it looks like, what, what do you call them, the self-directed trader, whatever you want to call them, it seems like they're having a, a rough time of it yeah. right now. Yeah. Um, so you run a business. You, you run a trading platform. What are you and other trading platforms, what are your competitors doing to keep people on the platform? If not actively trading, what, do they do? what are you doing to keep them there? Well, like our customers, we're new, right? So Weeple's been around for four years. We're evolving and maturing just with our users. So we started off self-directing. We're now offering products of um, recurring deposits, recurring investments, and we're soon going to be rolling out more passive investment options. Right? Not everyone is happy looking at their phone 12 hours a day nonstop trying to chart or, or, or time a market. A lot of people, especially with these volatiles, would rather kind of well, set when it and you forget say it. Pass, I, my heart leaps when I say pass because I'm a Jack Bogle guy, as you all know. But what, what does that mean to you? How do you encourage people to do passive investing from the active retail environment we've been seeing for s several years? Offer easy-to-navigate portfolio-building indexing tools that customers can then create to their own risk assessment profile and then actively invest in that on any given period of time that is sufficient for their, for their own budget. Portfolio building index tools. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is an amazing thing to hear from, you know, retail for, trading right. platform, Nick. Mm -hmm. Is this signs that the retail traders are evolving in the way they, they look? I, I'm hearing talking about passive investing here from a, an active sure. retail trading platform. Mm -hmm. hey, look at 
our generation. We grew up in the 1990s trading tech stocks. Then they blew up. Then we realized we've got to get serious. Start putting more into the 401k. Start putting more into personal investments. Understand indexing and passive investing. Every generation goes through the same evolution, I think, starting with an exciting bull market, but then realizing this is a very long game and you've got to play it as a long game. So it sounds like it's time for a lot of younger traders to grow up and think a little bit longer term. Just like we did. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Well, what happened in 99 and 2000? <laughs> I grew up, people grew up fast. Yeah. To, yeah. Uh, for doing that, that's for sure. Uh, so, uh, Nick, tell me where you stand on the markets right now. You're one of the great market watchers out there. Uh, puts out, those of you who don't know, uh, DataTrack puts out an outstanding um, daily newsletter. You're, you're sort of a, you're not a quant trader, but you're, you use quants, yeah. quantitative analysis for the stock market. You, you analyze massive sets of databases yeah. and, and look for clues. You mine for clues. Um, what do you see happening in the markets right now? The big question is, are we going to avoid a recession or, or, or not? Yeah, so the short answer is we're in for some more trouble. Uh, we've got two problems. The first is oil prices seem to still want to go higher. At 140, they're a double year over year. That's the signal of a recession coming. It always happens. When oil doubles in a year, you get a recession in the next 12 months. So that's the thing to worry about. My other concern is earnings expectations are way too high for the back half of the year. We've been doing $54 a share in S&P EPS every quarter for the last four quarters. The street's at 60 and $61 a share in the back half of the year. Those numbers have to come down. They're just irrationally high. And the market understands all that. The market's discounting yeah. those already. But until we see earnings cuts and continued growth and oil prices come in, I think we're in for more trouble. I honestly don't understand this. I've been watching the markets for 25 years as the stocks correspondent, and I am amazed they have not taken the earnings estimates down this year appreciably. So we're still looking at 10% earnings growth for the S&P this year, another 10% in 2023. Uh, and, and, and so the decline in the S&P 500 this year is entirely due to the multiple being compressed. It's not the earnings actually going down. If we, if earnings go, I think it's 228 now we have for the yeah. S&P from 208. And if we go flat on earnings, that would imply another potential 10% down leg in the market. That's how a lot of these strategies get to 3,400 yep. really quickly. Yep. Well, but you were an analyst, right? You write about this all the time when yeah. you were an analyst. Why aren't they? The market seems to believe that they should be taking the numbers down, that the estimates are too high for the second half of the year, even if there isn't a recession, and yet they're not doing anything. What, what is it that everyone else sees that the analysts don't want to see? Or is there a lack of creativity among the analyst community? No, the analysts really want the guidance of the companies before they cut numbers. They don't want to go out on a limb and cut a number that the, that the company will say, why are you putting out this low number? It's that feedback loop between the analysts right. and the company that prevents the right numbers coming but out. But what's the value of an analyst if the only thing they're going to do is we're not going to do anything until the company guides us? Who needs that? No. There used to be a lot of more independent thinking on Wall Street. There was. Look, there's an old saying about analysts. In a bull market, you don't need them. In a bear market, they'll kill you. Mm -hmm. We're in the second part. Yeah. Remember the 2003 analyst settlement, the global sure. settlement mm -hmm. uh, that Spitzer did? Uh, Spitzer correctly called out the conflict that existed, yep. sued the community, uh, and came to a deal. And what I saw after that, you tell me, you were around, uh, the brightest left on the sell side analysts went to the buy side. Mm -hmm. Some of them tried to set up their own shop. Uh, I saw pay dramatically drop. I saw a lot of people making a million plus a year in 2003. Uh, I don't know what the average pay for a sell side analyst now is, but I'll bet you it's probably 300,000, yeah. somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. um, 
so uh, best and brightest left. The pay dropped dramatically. And what I see, this is a broad statement, so forgive me, the intellectual quality of cell side research has declined dramatically. I, I get most of the streets research on a daily basis, and a shocking amount of it is garbage. Uh, there's no real value in it. My point is there was more creativity, outside-the-box thinking and, yeah, meta-analysis, whatever, than, than there is now where you correctly point out they're just waiting for the CEO to tell them something. Mm -hmm. So yeah. I, I'm editorializing a lot here, yeah. but I feel very strongly about it. If we believe, like, direction of earnings is important for the street and where prices go and analysts are just no longer doing anything, this the whole model kind of gets called into question here. The street starts moving independently of the analyst community. Yeah, no, that's true, but it, you know, at least the market discounts it before. So at least asset prices are being correctly set. What we're seeing right now is that worry. And by the way, the market peaked out at 33.87 in February 2020. The S&P is still 20% higher than that today. Every other global market is below its February 2020 levels right now. So we're outperforming, yeah. Dramatically. Yeah. Although I did note in May, um, Europe did a little bit better. I yes. think we were up 1%. China was up 1% or 2%. Um, S&P was 5 But that's a pretty small dispersion. It, it, it was pretty even uh, overall. It's kind of, you know, everything kind of flattened out second half of May. I had exactly the same thought running the numbers last night. Everything's so tight. A little bit here, a little bit there. IFA was up 2. EM's up 0.6. S&P and NAS are flat. Or S&P and Russell yeah. are flat. But still very tight. Yeah. What, it's a tight what, year to date. Yeah. What does this mean for your investors? Do, do they pay more attention to things like earnings? Or are we actually sitting around saying are, are the active traders are more interested in momentum trading, classic yeah. momentum trading? So they'll look at earnings when there is momentum behind it. I mean, on our platform, we also offer analyst ratings for customers or our clients to look at for every stock. Yeah. Right. And this is, a, you know, this is not naming Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan. It's a it's an um, uh, an average of all analysts across the street. It's one of our least looked at pages on the platform. Really? So, so retail investors, at least active retail investors, are looking for that momentum. They are playing earnings, uh, but not taking sides because of an analyst says so, taking sides because of peers. Yeah. And because this is an ETF show, I want to get your thoughts on sectors because mm. that's what people trade the most. Give us your view on sectors in the second half of the year. Is energy going to continue? Uh, what, I mean, give us some large macro themes here. Sure. So, yes, we still love energy right here. I think it still has a lot of room for multiple expansion, and the numbers are going up. Unlike the conversation with the market as a whole, where numbers have come down, ExxonMobil, Chevron, all the energy names, estimates are rising. So energy is fine. A lot of our customers are looking for safe havens. And for there, it's, for us, it's healthcare, like the XLVs, the large half healthcare's of the world. Because when growth investors can't buy tech because it's been imploding and can't buy retail because that's also not doing well, the only third road left is healthcare. And we see this over and over and over again. Every cycle sees healthcare as a percentage of the S&P peak at the bottom of the market. Happened in 2000, 2002, happened in 2009 yeah. and 10. We got another point or two to gain with healthcare. So that's got multiple expansion in it as well. well Those we are the saw two this sectors. Every day. I mean, Lilly, last week, new highs. Merck was at new highs the week before. Yep. You know, Bristol was stronger. So that, all of that is playing out exactly like you're saying on the yep. playbook. And it will continue to do so as long as we have these worries about recession. Numbers have to come down. So do we avoid a, re a recession? 
sorry to hit you with such macro <laughs> stuff. Uh, it may, makes, makes you uncomfortable, but th that's what people want to know. Tell me if there's a recession. I'll tell you if we're at some bottom right now. Tell me if oil goes to a buck forty, and I'll tell you if there's a recession. Because if, if it, it goes is, to one forty, one forty, and, and is, that's the doubling that you were that's talking. That's the doubling. Yes. In the current environment, I don't see a way to avoid a recession. If Russia-Ukraine solved that war and oil prices came back down below 100, we could easily avoid a recession. In the current environment, with current trends, very hard to see. So you think there's a good chance oil goes back over 140? Yeah. Because? Um, the last peak at 140 was uh, July of 2018, right around July 4th weekend, which is peak summer driving season. And we're heading there right into exactly the same setup right now. That's a good point. Anthony, any final word here? I just think people aren't looking at the macro version of, of you know, what happens with China-Taiwan uh, intervention. Uh, I think there's a lot more rain down the road, so I think we need to be cautious. On Taiwan-China, you said? Taiwan-China, yeah. yeah. Uh, do you think there's chances for conflict in 2023, for example? I mean, is there... It's going to look different than uh, Russia invading Ukraine, but from, you know, from conversations I've had with people overseas... Uh, it seems like China is definitely going to make some sort of headway into Taiwan by the end of this year, maybe even next year. And that's something we're not even talking about in this macro environment. Yeah, that's certainly a, that would certainly be another kind of game. How would that change the world? Uh, well, then you got global recession for sure and a pretty deep one. And forget about electronic supply chains, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, yeah. So uh, the probability of this, you, you think, are fairly high? You think so? Uh, maybe talk to Ian Bremmer on that one. Yeah. Well, that's an important point here. Um, so we, it, this is another potential, not a black swan event because it's a known unknown. It wouldn't be an unknown unknown uh, that, that's actually weighing out there. Now it's time to round out the conversation with some analysis and perspective to help you better understand ETFs. This is the Markets 102 portion of the podcast. Today, we'll be continuing the conversation with Nick Colas from DataTrek. Uh, Nick, you're such a great guy on you know, quant analysis. By quant analysis, I mean data mining, uh, large data sets for information on directions of the, the stock and the bond market. Um, one of the things that disturbs me a bit is this trend of deglobalization that we are seeing. So globalization, it seems to me, brought very obvious benefits. Uh, improved supply chain, more efficient distribution, lower inflation lower interest rates potentially. If you believe that that's true, I think that is reasonable to believe. If we are truly seeing deglobalization, is it reasonable to assume that the opposite may be happening, that we may be in for a period of, for example, higher inflation, partly due to the deglobalization, just as one aspect of this? Is that a reasonable train of thought? Yeah, it's absolutely a reasonable train of thought. And you're right. We had a 20-year period of declining interest rates, declining inflation, and from about 1993 and 4 on, a lot more globalization. So opening up global supply chains to provide cheaper goods to a wider market. That's what globalization did. And we hit a wall with that over the last two years. And everything that I read and I see tells me that it's going to start to reverse. We're going to see more onshoring now. And that should drive higher prices and inflation right. because it's more expensive to do. Well, just look at, for example, what it's going to cost to, to build a, a fab plant, a, you know, a, a semiconductor manufacturing plant. If you are, can efficiently do this in two places in the world, and all of a sudden now you have to do it in five places, normal economists would say the costs are going to be higher. Yes, absolutely. 
And then we've suddenly decided that certain things are national security issues, not just semiconductors, but pharmaceuticals, for example. All of a sudden, maybe it's not safe to have them manufactured in China. Uh, we have to manufacture them now in the United States. So it, there are all sorts of implications here that I think are very troubling for the fight against inflation. Uh, and that's why I think it may be more persistent than some people actually think it is, even if we get the supply chains unraveled a little bit. If we're, just, if we're scrambling the supply chains, unraveling the current supply chains is, is still not going to solve the long-term problem if you're building new plants all over the place. Yes, and I think in a very real sense, the market is trying to figure this out as well. Because if you invest in lower return on capital projects as a business, because you have to, because you have to onshore supply chains that used to be offshore, your return on capital declines, your margins decline, and your valuation will decline. So the real question is, is a 17 or 18 multiple that we used to have on the S&P pre this break of globalization, is that still a valid target multiple for the S&P? Or because companies have to invest in lower return projects, lower margin projects, do we then have a problem where multiples perhaps have capped out and maybe the right multiple is 15 or 16 or 17 times earnings. We're going to know that in the next couple of years, but the discussion that we're having now is the baselining exercise to understand which direction we go. Right. And right now the multiple is about 17 times yep. forward earnings, which is close to the historic norm. But we don't know if the earnings are going to hold up. But we had this discussion before. We're expecting 10% earnings growth in the S&P in 2022, 10% in 20. 23, and yet the, the market doesn't seem to want to believe that we're going to have 10% earnings growth at this point. Well, the thing, Is it your baseline case that that's going to come down? It will have to come down. So the analysts are, we've just done three quarters, four quarters of $54 a share on the S&P. Analysts are looking for $60 a share in Q3 and Q4. So we can't go from 54 to 60 over two quarters. It's not going to happen. More realistic number is 55 or 56, assuming some modest growth. So the numbers have to come down. For next year, same thing. And I think we can ask ourselves the question against a backdrop of deglobalization. Do we think multiples will be higher or lower in three years than today? And the answer logically is probably slightly lower because you're not going to pay as much for businesses that have to invest in higher cost manufacturing regions, for example. So if we do 17 times forward earnings and we get zero earnings growth this year, that means 10% earnings are 10. it would be rational to assume 10 percent lower earnings potential 10 percent lower s p 500 right? yes that's right yeah. that's right look we're still up versus where we were at the, before yeah. the whole crisis happened we're still up versus yeah. the 3387 eyes this is an etf show and i know we keep talking about macro but uh you're such a great macro guy I, I, i've wanted to focus on that but in terms of fund flows what's remarkable to me is that even this year with the s p you know down almost 20 percent at one point there are consistent flows into plain vanilla ETFs. The S&P 500, whatever iteration, whether it's an iShares or Spider or whatever, Vanguard, consistent inflows into plain vanilla indexed ETFs. Now, some of this clearly is people taking money out of mutual funds, higher cost into lower cost. Uh, but I'm still heartened by the fact that the ETF industry continues to keep growing on the, on the, the plain vanilla side. Yep. No, it's absolutely true, and it is very good to see. And I agree with you that it's money flows probably coming out of higher-cost mutual funds. Look, I mean, ETFs are the greatest dis disruptive force in finance in the last 20 years. And I say that in the most positive sense of the word. A disruptive technology always comes in at the low end of a market with people who are underserved. SPY did that in 1993 because you couldn't get a plain vanilla ETF. 
i.e. plain vanilla fund, and it's just grown from there. And now we have thousands of ETFs, and they serve a whole variety of uses. But at the end of the day, the most important thing is provide access to regular investors in the lowest cost manner possible so they can have the highest potential future return with the lowest fees. And they're still doing that, which is great. Yeah. Are they going to... We sort of hit the rock bottom. I mean, it's three basis points for the S&P 500 for some of these funds right now. It's not going to get much cheaper than that. I feel very ambivalent about active management because, to me, if you're a crummy active manager in a mutual fund, you're going to be a crummy active manager in an ETF. It's just a wrapper. That's all it is at this point. I guess the, the, the bigger issue is how the public feels about active versus passive investing, despite the academic evidence yeah. that long-term passive investing is a superior strategy than active investing because market timing generally doesn't work. Um, a- active management never quite dies. Is that a good thing? I mean, the active people keep saying, we've got to have people picking stocks out here. You can't just have passive investing. Is there some empirical reason why you, 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 you must continue to have active investors? What, what's the argument here? I mean, the argument used to be that you needed active investors to differentiate between actual stories and managements and have that real touch point with the, with the real world. Given how algorithmic the market has become, it's a little bit harder to make that argument because the machines arbor away pretty much any short-term variability that a human might have done 20 years ago. So the only big picture thing is to have people who can really see into the future and pick stocks well, and there's not very many of those. But I will say active management has one great utility, and that is that if an investor would not invest in anything other than an active manager, it's still better being in the active manager than not not being in the market at all. So if you need to believe in somebody's ability, great. Just stick with that person, because even if they underperform the index, they'll still do better than cash. Yeah, it's time in the market, not timing the market is the, is the old phrase. You mentioned an interesting word there. That it's really the algorithms that are arboring away a lot of the human advantage. But some people take that to an extreme. They, they say, well, the machines are in charge, as, as if the problem I have with that is it's the, the machines are not self-employed. They're not writing algorithms. They don't have a bank account. There are people that are writing the algorithms that tell them when to buy. There are people at the end of the day who own the stocks. There are pension funds at the end of the day that own the stocks, even if it's traded in between by, by uh, you know, some, some kind of high-frequency high trader that doesn't hold on to it for more than a fraction of a second. So at the end of the day, people are still writing these algorithms that are out there. Uh, I, I find it disturbing that a lot of people seem to think that there are extraterrestrial intelligences that are in charge of the stock market, that, that they're not there. It's just not. Yeah. So this phrase, the machines are running everything, seems to paper over everyone's inability to understand what is going on in, in the markets. And ultimately, I, do, do, I guess this question is, do you still think fundamentals matter? Do you think ultimately prices still move on the direction of, of, of of fundamentals for these for these companies. Yeah, I, I am very much still a fundamental analyst at heart and view the world through a fundamental lens. I think it helps to think like a machine sometimes. As we do a lot of correlation work uh, for clients, analyzing how a machine might look at the current market and say, oh, look, I mean, energy still is not very highly correlated or mm-hmm. all the major sectors are very highly correlated or the VIX gets to 36. If you go back and look at a chart, when the VIX gets to 36, the market bottoms in a day. And that's, I think, because a lot of algos know 36 is two standard deviations from the long-run mean on the VIX. That's a very unusual level. And you should bias, perhaps, your bids to be a little more aggressive. 
and things begin to work their but way even higher. There, this algorithm that controls the universe that buys the 36 is based on historical trends with humans who have noted this, who programmed an algorithm. Yes. It's not an extraterrestrial sitting there right. controlling the market. And it's not dark, unseen forces controlling and, the universe. And there's no guarantee the VIX can't go to 44, which is another standard deviation. Yeah. And it has. And it will again. Yeah. Even yeah. the machines get surprised. Well, that's what's good about it. We always get surprised. Nick Cole is co-founder of Datatrack. Thank you very much. And those of you uh, who don't know about Datatrack, I encourage you to look it up. Terrific uh, daily read uh, on uh, large-scale, uh, 3,000-foot view of the stock market. Nick Cole, thanks very much. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on the ETF Edge podcast. Invesco QQQ believes new innovations create new opportunities. Become an agent of innovation. Invesco QQQ. Invesco Distributors, Inc.